is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart, every Disney movie ever. I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me is... Megan Bojarski. Uh, in this episode, we return to South America for a fantastical, fan- fantastical, maybe, in some ways, journey through music. And Donald Duck becomes obsessed with women. So this is The Three Caballeros, uh, which is the second of the so-called Good Neighbor films. You remember Saludos Amigos from a few weeks ago. And also like Saludos Amigos, I must remind you that neither of us speak Spanish or Portuguese. And so we apologize in advance. We are doing our best, but our best is probably not very good. So apologies to any Spanish or Portuguese speakers, native or otherwise, because we will likely offend you with our pronunciation. I always forget two L's is a Y, and I keep trying to call it the three caballeros, and then I feel really stupid. The song helps. Like, once you get the song stuck in your head, (laughs) that's how I remember it is in my head. I'm just always like the three caballeros. And so like that I have down. The rest of it, not so much. I studied French and it's just a, that's one of those few differences that never quite sunk into me. And I did German, so that's, I'm no help at all. (laughs) (laughs) There's no romance language in me, unfortunately. So it's been a little while since we talked about Saludos Amigos, but for our listeners, there's only been a week in between. And so just a brief recap of this whole project, you know, in 1940, Nelson Rockefeller wrote to FDR about the Axis powers and their growing popularity in Latin and South America. And so the Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs sponsored goodwill tours through South America, the biggest one potentially being Walt Disney. And so they sent Walt and a bunch of his close compatriots down to South America for a goodwill tour that resulted in Saludos Amigos initially, which was a mix of live action footage that they had shot while down there and shorts inspired by the trip. They also had started working on the Three Caballeros, but it was delayed because of all the other wartime propaganda stuff that we talked about last week. So that stuff, you know, got precedence in the production pipeline because the government was paying for it directly, even though this was also guaranteed. It wasn't as rushed to production as things like Victory Through Air Power and all of the propaganda shorts that we talked about last week. Looking back through this, I've continued to do research and I learned that apparently Goodwill Tours did not have a great reputation in South America, because it tended to be, number one, that the people were just essentially there to get drunk and eat food and listen to music. And second, that they just kind of acted like idiots running around. Thankfully, the Disney company doesn't have too much of a reputation with that. But I think that you might see some of that influence in this movie of kind of what happens when you put a bunch of relatively rich Americans or U.S. citizens and throw them into Latin America, and 
they don't necessarily behave exactly as they should. Americans, you can't take us anywhere. <laughs> so while there were some wonderful things that came out of that, specifically the rise of Mary Blair, the kind of beautiful depiction of Rio de Janeiro, which is kind of the main part of Saludos Amigos, as you'll remember, that was well-received everywhere. There was some controversy, but that segment was pretty well-loved. Uh, there were also some kind of complicated legacies that I think definitely stand out to us in the modern day that we'll talk about a little bit more. But one of the things that we'll see with specifically the Three Caballeros is that there was a dual purpose here. So first off, they were trying to do the Good Neighbor films, as we talked about before, but also due to some of the delays and the timelines, they specifically decided that this was going to be the 10th anniversary celebration of Donald Duck, who was introduced in The Wise Little Hen in 1934, and then was connected with Mickey Mouse in Orphan's Benefit from the same year. This didn't come out like on the same day or anything, but it was 10 years apart and thus kind of the, the driving force of the movie was connected with that in that Donald was getting presents. And so he's uh, definitely centered alongside their mission of trying to really show off different sides of Latin America. I really I actually think that helps this feel, despite some of the weirdness in some of the stuff that happens in the movie, I think Donald's birthday gives this a at least a through line uh, mm -hmm. that Saludos Amigos doesn't have. And where that the idea or the feel behind Saludos Amigos at least feels like a here's postcards from our trip. And here's here's a, here's slides of things that we saw when we were down there. And then the shorts are kind of d derived from the places that are being depicted. Whereas this Donald is being whisked on a journey through South America. And we're sort of seeing things a little bit from his point of view. And it's also very bird heavy. I mean, the whole concept of the Three Caballeros was what if we just play with birds from other cultures at the beginning, which, you know, worked surprisingly well in its own time. Like we talked about two weeks ago, Jose Carioca was extremely popular and was actually considered to be more popular than Donald Duck and more popular than Mickey Mouse at that time. So there was definitely some uh, great popularity that they were fueling off of. But it, it certainly helped to have a bit of a narrative line. That's something we'll talk about, I think, a lot more in these next few segments as we're looking at the package films of did they just throw a bunch of random stories together or is there actually some form of connectivity here, which they do surprisingly well in this particular instance. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Some of the package films are a lot messier and they do their best to connect them, but there's not as much thematic connection between them where, like I said, at least this has Donald as a core concept. And we keep coming back to this sort of abstract space that he's opening these these presents in to, again, give it it feels less choppy, I guess, to me, because it's not there's less of like, and now we're going to go and introduce in Salus Amigos. It was like, now we're traveling to this country and here's like a three minute overview of what we learned about this country. And then here's a short that is vaguely connected to that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I think, like I said, I think this one is a stronger movie overall as a feature film. And even among the other package films from my memories of this is one of the stronger where there's a core concept that feels like it's carried through the whole way. One of the other things that we see in this is that where Saludos Amigos 
was kind of just jumping from one country to the other. Some of them executed well, some of them less so. They really focused on Brazil and Mexico here, which, although it was talking about South America and Mexico is North America, that being put aside, uh, it actually did a fairly good job of being able to show the distinctions between these two cultures and give some degree of depth to their depictions. I think that there are many arguments that it wasn't quite enough depth, but there's certainly more of a grounded sense that we were in one particular place in each instance, not kind of the stereotypical Latin America-y feeling that's, you know, a little bit not as advanced as us and a little bit sexier than us that I think was a little bit obvious in Saludos Amigos. One of the things that was helpful to this was that while the original group was on their way back from mostly South America, there was a group that stopped in Mexico City. They actually really enjoyed it there and decided that they wanted to focus on Mexico as well, which has often been kind of ignored or deeply disrespected in Hollywood at this period of time. Basically, the most you get out of it is Westerns trying to kind of merge cultures in slightly uncomfortable ways. And so one of the other things that's kind of important to note here is that there was at least two other trips that were taken, specifically to Mexico. So Walt took a smaller group on a trip to Mexico to get more inspiration in December of 1942. They returned in spring of 1943 to really look into music and dance, which I think is very clear when you're watching the movie. So they did make an effort to expand on their knowledge from what the average U.S. citizen would know and what they had learned from their brief visits in the original Goodwill tour. It doesn't feel like they could have made Three Caballeros without having made Saludos Amigos first and sort of stumbling through some things. Like, giving Walt and crew the benefit of the doubt, at least, it feels like this was a, not a makeup, but like, oh, okay, now that we've, now that we've done it once and we have heard some of the reactions and we've better figured out our process because Saludos Amigos was also like at the height of the strike. Most of the people who worked on it did not go on the trip. So there was a lot of like, I feel like communication gaps. And also, again, this was like a bunch of white people going down to South America and bringing stuff back and then reinterpreting it themselves. And as we'll talk about in a little in a little while, there's a lot more involvement from the people being depicted in the movie as part of the creative process of the movie, which I think also helps solve a lot of the cultural issues. But Three Caballeros also introduced some other some <laughs> other issues that we'll talk about later. So it's like one step forward, one step back It's in some ways. Yeah, I was not excited to see our, our good old 10-second disclaimer at the beginning of this movie on Disney Plus again. I think that you definitely see kind of parts where they really were doing their best and parts where it definitely went off the rails in some ways. I think part of that disclaimer, too, is uh, Jose Caroca's cigar smoking is... I think anytime there's smoking in one of these movies, it's gonna it's always going to get that unskippable one. Whereas I think... There's plenty of other reasons why that should be there, but I think that is, that's going to be one of those where it's like, you know, it's the PG-13 F word where it's like, if that's in there, it's automatic. <laughs> I always like the silly ones where they're like, how dare they be smoking? The racism, you know, that we're not super concerned about that, but the smoking, or as we'll talk about here, there was some censorship because they used the word gay. Yeah. So yes, there's definitely the 
very real issues and then the kind of funny Hollywood reasons for that disclaimer. Yeah, I'm very looking forward to talking about the gay three caballeros because I, I have some thoughts. Uh, so so three caballeros is uh, directed by Norman Ferguson. He gets the overall credit, even though it's very much a patchwork of different people that worked on different animated segments, as well as I'm sure different people who captured the documentary style and other live action footage. But some other other people to know, Mary Blair is listed as an art supervisor. She's in the opening credits of the movie, which is always nice to see. And then Ub Iwerks, uh, who we talked about, I think only in our very first episode, Ub Iwerks, co-creator of Mickey Mouse, and was Walt's first business partner way back in 1922. He had left Disney in 1929, and then he came back in 1940. Ub Iwerks is, if anything, besides his contributions of creating Mickey Mouse and, and a lot of other things, he is a, a technical innovator and kind of a genius when it came to integrating the live action and animation, which we see here. We'll also see it in Song of the South. The high point of it probably is Mary Poppins, which he also worked on. Again, that's probably the high point until Roger Rabbit of that blending of live action and animation, 2D animation. And he also developed the uh, zero graphic process for cell animation, which is the only reason 101 Dalmatians was able to be made because that is a lot of Dalmatians to draw which we'll be talking about at some point later this year. And then he also worked at WED Enterprises, which is now Walt Disney Imagineering. And so he was involved in developing a lot of the uh, Disney theme park attractions uh, in, in the 1960s. Yeah, it was really kind of cool to see his name again, because he's responsible for so many of those big things in the beginning and then later on that it's nice to see him uh return and getting some credit he uh was not very happy with walt when he left the company and made his own but getting to see him kind of come back into the fold was really helpful one of the other things that's super important when we're talking about names just first off there are so many names that we are not calling out there are so many names that disney did not call out mm -hmm. there are are hundreds of people who worked on these movies that are not credited and we apologize for not covering all of them but we only know what we know but the thing that was kind of heartening to see was that there actually were Latin Americans working on this project. So they specifically said that for the Spanish and Brazilian sections, there were two people that I couldn't find out their ethnicity or origins, Jack Cutting and Sidney Field. But beyond that, there was Aloysio de Oliveira, who was Brazilian, Edmundo Santos, who was Mexican, and Gilberto Sauto who was Brazilian, who had fairly major roles in making sure that this wasn't horribly racist. Maybe it worked, maybe it didn't. Who were responsible for the integration of the languages, which I think is much better done here than it was perhaps in Saludos Amigos. There are multiple sections where we're seeing there's Portuguese, there's Spanish, there's English going, and they sometimes work together and sometimes don't. And the ways that that it was really useful to kind of see how those things came together and how they clashed. And it was just very heartening to see that there were actually some of the people being represented and whose cultures and locations were being represented who were working on this, because that was definitely something that was missing on our last Good Neighbor project. I'm certainly not enough of an expert in the cultural or otherwise history of our three countries, but 
to me, it's very clear that this is a huge step over Saludos Amigos. So by way of comparison, just to a thing I am familiar with, I can say that like whether or not it was progressive for the time, this really was, I think, a huge step forward again in actually trying to authentically represent those cultures the way they are and not frame it through the American tourism lens of Saludos Amigos. And there's certainly arguments to be made that are kind of against that point. There are some scholars in particular who take a lot of grievance with this movie and Saludos Amigos. But I think that one of the things that we'll be doing a lot here is saying that there are so many steps forward as well as certainly steps back. One of the biggest steps forward is technologically, which is nice. We haven't gotten to talk about technology too much recently. But whereas many of the other films that we've seen that kind of blended live action with animation basically just had live action sections and animation sections, we actually got kind of a blend with The Three Caballeros, where we actually see both on screen together, interacting with each other, in what is frankly just fascinating and complicated dance of animation, music, live action. I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But that was definitely a huge step forward uh, technologically. It's something that Disney had worked on a long time ago with the, the Alice comedies as their called which has a live action little girl in in a cartoon I you know a black and white very simplified cartoon world I think what's really interesting about the process here is that if I had had to guess how it was done I would have been completely and utterly backwards <laughs> in terms of which came first because to me I would have been like oh they filmed the live action and then they're drawing the characters like directly on the negative or something or or printing them on the negative somehow or like I would have just assumed that you film the actual stuff first and then you add the animation in but it seems like that was actually the opposite so the from a 1944 issue of popular science which I get thanks to cartoonbrew.com for posting this really old article that is really helpful the cartoon over live action effort was achieved through a further development of process projection, which was already in use by all of the studios to place actors in front of previously filmed backgrounds. So again, that, that rear projection when you see older movies and people are driving in cars and the movement doesn't match whatever the actors uh, miming with the steering wheel. It, that's very similar to this, but for this movie, the music and songs were recorded and then the cartoon action was timed to fit them. Then optical experts design and ground special quartz lenses to deliver maximum light to the projector. And the sound crew set up a translucent plastic screen, placed the projector on one side and the camera on the opposite side. And so then they would capture the live action performance as the previously done animation and background was already completed. So it's, it's basically like a, a very early version of green screen that we that you know people on youtube now <laughs> like use all, all the time and it's like not a big deal but this is the original sort of concept for it where they're actually projecting the completed footage behind the real person and they're capturing both through a camera and so that's why even on the really cleaned up and nice looking version on disney plus you know jose and donald look a bit more washed out in the integrated segments than they do in the fully animated segments and one of the other things that we see with that is kind of the return, not that it stopped being used, but the real importance of the multiplane camera, because they then occasionally layered the animation back over 
where they had done the live action so that they could get the characters in front or behind as needed, which did really help that integration that they could move kind of in whatever direction with the real actors that they needed to. Yeah, like if you have a bunch of women in bathing suits flinging Donald Duck off of a seesaw and then catching him in a blanket, it's very convincing. Yeah, I was wondering what they were actually using because there was definitely something moving that blanket. For those of you who haven't seen this, it's a wild ride, but once it gets integrated, basically Donald Duck just starts dancing at, staring at, and chasing various women in various locations. And it's surprisingly effective in how those two things were put up to each other. (laughs) Although I will say, when he was on the flying carpet diving at them, I was just seeing Hitchcock's The Birds, like all of the women (laughs) running away from these three (laughs) random birds attacking them. Thankfully, the animation is more successful than Donald is in his pursuit of these women, which I think is for the best. But the the effect, it it is all convincing in a way. (laughs) One of the things to note here is that this was a process that changed as they were producing the film. They actually originally were working in full animation in 1941, which, as far as we can tell, was just a standard short. This was probably the government asked for shorts and then they kind of stretched it into a film as they did with a few others, notably Fantasia. But by 1942, they pretty much knew that this was going to be a full-length film, which is when they really worked on developing these processes that work surprisingly effectively as they really bring in kind of these major Latin American stars of the period, including Aurora Miranda, who is a Brazilian singer and sister of Carmen Miranda, the Mexican singer Dora Luz, as well as Mexican actress, singer, and dancer Carmen Molina. So we see kind of this integration, not just behind the screen, but on the screen of these major Latin American figures, so that it's not just a American-created cartoon bird representing the culture. And again, like we talked about in, you know, sort of our our brief overview, the frame story is Donald Duck's birthday, and he gets a bunch of presents from his friends in Latin America. Uh, I actually really like the gift tag sort of going from presumably, I'm going to say Portuguese into English, because I didn't didn't recognize any of the words. And I, I feel like I have seen enough Spanish words to pick up on that, but apologies if I'm wrong on that. But you know, Donald, like remembering that he understands the other language, I thought was a kind of a cute touch at the beginning. The first gift he opens is a film projector. And then there are reels of what he calls home movies. And then there are three segments within that. There's the cold-blooded penguin, the flying gachito, and the one that, that lists all of the birds, I believe is also in, in, in that segment. Yeah, it's a little bit complicated to break this one down because technically... The cold-blooded penguin and the flying gachito are part of Avis Raras, but they're also separate because there's obviously the period identifying all the birds. It's kind of just the flight section that kind of has all three of those segments in it. And in my opinion, is probably the most effective section. Not necessarily with the technology, because that section is all animation, but it was definitely something that I could watch and enjoy and not feel horribly disturbed which happens a little bit more as we go further down this movie and then donald opens a second present which is a book and within the book is jose caroga himself and so he takes Donald on a trip to 
Bahia in Brazil. So they go into the book, they dance the samba, they both kind of have a little bit of a flirtation, love interest. And then they come out of the book with Jose sort of just naturally flying out on his own with the use of his umbrella and being totally fine. And then Donald coming out very flat. And then there's a whole segment where he tries to inflate himself to get back up to normal size so that he's no longer book Donald size. And then Panchito, the third caballero from Mexico, is introduced. And so there's the creation of the friendship. There's a, the big musical number, um, the big title musical number for the three caballeros. And also the the return of the soundtrack from Fantasia which gets tangled up with Donald. <laughs> and so, Megan, when I, when I was watching this earlier today, actually, I was I thought of you during the segment where Donald and the soundtrack sort of get intermingled in this segment because I thought it was, it was a fun and subtle, maybe, callback to your favorite part of Fantasia. Yeah, there's definitely an acknowledgement in this movie that there are some elements of Fantasia that kind of follow through it. Interestingly enough, and we can talk about it more in Legacies, some of the songs from this get integrated into later movies, so they continue that kind of Easter egg effect, including Pixar's Coco actually references some of the songs from this movie, which I was kind of excited and pleased to see earlier because it shows that they're kind of acknowledging their past while also doing, in my opinion, a much better movie. But I also prefer the more narrative-focused ones. But I did like seeing that callback to... Just the cute little soundtrack, although he doesn't have as much, you know, personality in this one. He's more of just kind of a function of the world. Donald takes the center stage. That, that is sort of his MO from his work with Mickey. So I'm, I'm not really surprised that Donald puts himself as priority over, over the soundtrack. And then Panchito gives Donald a piñata for his birthday. There's a limited animation segment called Las Posadas, which is a sort of a retelling of Mexican Christmas traditions around the piñata and children sort of reenacting Mary and Joseph trying to find a room at the inn. This had, to me, had a very clear Mary Blair style to it. And the drawings look very much like the dolls from the It's a Small World attraction. And so it was kind of nice to see her style like very clearly emerge. And like, I could already see how like, oh, this is how we get to that sort of 3d version uh that we've seen you know in, in the ride and then there's sort of a so it's a, it's a tour of mexico on a flying serapa which is i think a, maybe a little insensitive but i think it's trying to be cute about it i i'm not the right person to say whether or not that is mixing too many things together or if there is a mexican tradition of flying carpets i am personally not aware of them which again does not mean that they exist don't exist but it allows the sort of fantastical moving through these locations uh, pretty quickly. I will say that this area is when we start to get uncomfortable for me, somehow in both ways. So there's the animation portion where I think just in general, when we see humans be animated, Disney still had not quite gotten that right yet. And so there's some questionable elements to how they were animated. And yet somehow it's more horrifying when they're live action, simply because Donald is a creep, I'll say. He is certain that he deserves the attention of these women and is <laughs> eager to try and get it. It's very weird because I can't think of another instance where Donald is in Pepe Le Pew mode. It's not a normal Donald trait for him to be 
obsessed with with women in general, let alone human women. Like I'm, I don't know exactly. I didn't see anything that described how or why these decisions were made, but it, it just feels it's very like, and this is maybe a really weird thing to say given the the time period that it's in. It feels very un Disney like of Donald. From the research that I was doing, essentially they just pass that trait off to Jose in future depictions that he's a womanizer. All I can figure is that was the point where this switched from like a group project with a lot of Mary Blair's influence to like the boys club that got uncomfortable because he's definitely wanting to claim and to to use more of a sociological angle trying to consume <laughs> these Latino women who one point run away, but at the other point seem to welcome it. Yeah, there's a lot of troubling things there. And I think that they realized they couldn't do that to Donald because they love Donald too much. So I think they pushed it off onto other characters, but mostly just kind of got rid of it in the future, which I, for one, am grateful for because it is uncomfortable. Giving them the benefit of the doubt, I think it's meant to be sort of playful and fun. I don't think it comes across that way, at least, you know, watching it with current day, you know, with, with current day values and, and expectations, especially, I, I would say, especially around expectations of what we think of in a Disney movie and of what we think of, you know, the core Disney characters of like Mickey, Donald, Goofy. It's not situations that we ever see them in anymore. And so I, I just think, I think that adds an extra layer of discomfort to it and you know there's there's moments in there like i'd have to go like minute by minute to be like well this this is actually fun and cute and then this is actually creepy but you know i think i'm obviously not going to try to convince you megan that that it's not creepy but i i can see what they were going for you know in the boys club sense of the word but it certainly hasn't aged well and i think it's just a weird choice overall because there's a lot of it it's not like it's like a, a gag or two or there's like oh there's one segment where like you know donald is infatuated with this one woman it's like donald is just going after every woman in sight unabashedly and somewhat aggressively yeah and it's for the last 30 or or maybe even 40 minutes of the film i think and while jose and panchito to some extent give him permission to chase the latina women at first they start pulling him back saying that this is like we gotta move on this isn't cool and he keeps fighting them which is where it gets even more troubling where even the movie itself seems to acknowledge it has gone too far but keeps going but then they make that yeah. even weirder in the final two numbers. So I don't know what happened to the end of this movie, but it definitely lost the respectability that I think the beginning had more of. And for me, it peaks with the title song. And then, you know, I, I do like that Mary Blair segment that we talked about with the, the pinata. And then after that, it goes completely off the rails. And Megan's saying like the last 30 or 40 minutes, this movie is 70 minutes long. <laughs> so... It's a good half of the movie that is just, and I think the other thing too is it's a return to more of the, you know, we, we had talked about Saludos Amigos being too gag driven for what it was actually trying to accomplish. And I think this falls back into that territory where there's maybe for whatever reason, the folks at Disney just really got Brazil in a way that they really didn't quite know how to approach any of the other countries in this hemisphere. <laughs> 
if I, you know, put my academic hat on, the whole movie can be accused of essentially being two Latino men giving Donald permission to consume their culture and kind of presenting the idea that Latin America is only valid for the cool, fun parts that Americans would want to visit. These are the beaches, these are the parties, this is the music, the dance, the women. And it's a very kind of imperialistic take. I don't know that that was what they were intending to do, but it's definitely kind of a vibe. But it gets significantly worse as it goes towards... It's not just, oh, you should visit the pretty beaches and you should enjoy this wonderful culture to the point that Donald literally at one point just starts like chanting under his breath, pretty women, pretty women, pretty women. That's the low point for me, for sure. And I should also clarify that I was talking about the intent to be like playful and and charming. And that's me sort of guessing at the intent just based on what I know about the animators from other things that we've researched. It's not that it was just uncomfortable watching it from today's angle we at least have there's at least one critic that we'll talk about who had that exact same response in the 1940s when this originally came out so this is it actually does go that far where it's one of those things you can't say well oh like for the time this was like there were people who were very disturbed by this contemporary to its release one thing really quickly and i i know we're kind of belaboring the point i always find the disturbing things because i've written far too many papers breaking down these uh disturbing elements of movies there were elements of this movie and saludos amigos that were very well received by the countries they were depicting and parts that have quite a positive legacy that we will talk about in just a few minutes so there are definitely some very concerning things There are also some arguably really good things. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the person, the culture, their specific positionality within all of this. So I think that I just wanted to put it out there that this isn't necessarily a movie that we're tearing apart entirely. Just this segment, I will unabashedly tear apart. I think that's totally fair. And like I said, it gets weirder. And then they're like, okay, fireworks, time to wrap it up and go home. You know, and there's also a run, the running gag of the uh, Arakan bird uh, causing trouble for the three caballeros, which is a character that always annoyed me as a kid. And I, for some reason, find less annoying now <laughs> than I did back then. The Arakan bird is voiced by Pinto Kolvig, who was the original voice of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, Practical Pig, as well as Pluto, Sleepy, Grumpy, Dopey, and many others, probably most known for being the voice of Goofy. The last time I looked at my letterbox stats for 2023 because of doing this podcast, he is my most watched actor uh, of the year. So (laughs) a good call out for Pinto Colvi, Pinto Colvig, and the Arakan bird actually later makes an appearance in a 1947 short called Clown of the Jungle, uh, where he is interrupting Donald's attempts to photograph birds in the South American jungle, which is kind of a nice little sequel to this movie. It, it, like, it's one of those, again, like Easter egg callback things that the Disney company starts to kind of do more and more as time goes on. And then we will actually see him again because he appears in one of the other package films. I think it's Melody Time, but... The titles always confuse me, but he will come back again as a recurring gag that extends beyond just this movie. He appears with Donald and Jose in the Blame It on the Samba part of Melody Time. 
I really like that segment actually. From from my memory, it's been, it's been a few years. And so across these segments, there's three different narrators. The uh, Pablo, the cold-blooded penguin, is narrated by Sterling, Sterling Holloway. Again, most noted or most remembered for being the voice of Winnie the Pooh, which I think you can definitely hear in the way he narrates it. Oh yeah. Um, and it, <laughs> and again, he was the his Disney voice acting debut was as the stork uh, in Dumbo. Frank Graham did the majority of the narration in this movie. He was also the narrator for Saludos Amigos. And I feel like his voice is one that will we'll keep recurring here and there. You know, one of these people that Disney Company goes back to over and over again to bring in to narrate certain things. And then Fred Shields narrates the Flying Gauchito segment. He does Spanish with a Mexican accent, which is not great. It's not Speedy Gonzalez bad if we're talking about degrees, but it's it's just it's not it's not good either. He was the voice of the Great Prince in Bambi, and he's also a lot of the narrator for a lot of the Goofy and Donald shorts where they're doing some kind of narration framing device. Joaquin Garay voiced Panchito. He was born in Mexico, and he never voiced the character again. He had a very short career, relatively speaking. But Panchito has historically been exclusively voiced by Hispanic actors, which is actually a really cool, you know, like that's a bright spot, you know, that we could point to and say they got this right. And uh, Jose Oliveira voiced Jose. He is was born in Brazil and his only acting credits are as Jose. Later voice actors brought in to voice Jose Corico were unfortunately not Latino, uh, more often than not. Uh, Rob Paulson, who voiced the character from 2001 to 2020 has actually publicly spoken about how saying he will never voice a character of color again because it takes away work from people of color and hurts the character's authenticity which you know again like we're talking 2020 so it's like it really is kind of a better late than never thing but you know it is unfortunate that while voice actors are talented at doing many many voices i i do think that if you're going to if your selling point of the character to say, this is not a stereotype, this is our our best shot and authentic depiction of someone from this culture, getting an actual person from that culture to do the voice is sort of part of that package to me. Yeah, I think that looking at the voice actors is definitely an interesting part for this movie. I think some of the other movies, it just didn't really come up in part because they weren't depicting that many non-white characters. Although we've talked about some of the troublesome layers of that with verbal blackface in specifically Dumbo, and we will talk more about some of those wonderful things again. But that is one point that they did fairly well on here, at least in the original voicing of the characters. When we come to the contemporary release, we get kind of a complicated situation, because this movie had some backlash, but has, like, a tremendous legacy that I think is like three pages of our notes. So the people who originally saw it weren't certainly weren't that repulsed by it. And I think it's one of those where the legacy of the movie is really about the characters more so than the segments of the movie itself. Like I feel like a lot of people went in went into this movie came out in sort of a fugue state uh, <laughs> after seeing the last couple segments, and they were like, you know what, I really do like this Caballeros though. Like, I, I don't think this is a fondly, I think the three caballeros, Donald, Jose, and Panchito, have a long legacy and are fondly remembered. But I didn't really get the sense that 
this movie as a whole was except by some of the animators who worked on it who said that like this was some of their favorite work that they did and i think again on a technical level there's some really good stuff in here there's some really kind of experimental stuff that i think is very interesting to me it doesn't feel as singular and as complete as something like fantasia where you're like this each segment has a very distinct vision and a distinct voice and it's really coming together even putting the Donald of it all aside for the moment, this sort of felt like the animators kind of off the leash, which I'm sure for them was very freeing and very expressive, but I don't necessarily think it makes for a better movie overall. One of the interesting things that we'll see with that is kind of the way that the film was released. So similar to Saludos Amigos, which I believe was released in Rio de Janeiro, This film premiered in Mexico City on December 21st, 1944, which made the Mexican premiere the part that was actually 10 years after Donald Duck was introduced. It was actually released in the United States on February 3rd, 1945, and in the UK in March of 1945. So it ends up being kind of funny that their whole 10-year anniversary doesn't actually end up working within their own country, but to some extent that actually is a credit to the film that it wanted that important anniversary to be in the country that it was newly depicting. With that being said, it didn't have as much of a splash as many of the other movies have had. It was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Scoring of a Musical Picture and Best Sound Recording, but it didn't win, and that's kind of all the positives. I'm sure there were other reviews that we weren't able to find, but by and large it seemed to be a movie that people watched and moved on from. It wasn't maybe as enduring as many of the classics that we spoke about in our first season. And as aforementioned, it's funny because independently this is the only review that either of us seemed to find, and I think this might be a popular quote about this movie, but In The New Yorker, Walcott Gibbs uh, gave it a very harsh negative review. This review ran in The New Yorker under the headline, What Hath Walt Wrought? And so the, the quote that we have is that the concept for the movie is one of those things that might discomfort less squeamish authorities than the Hayes office. It might even be said that a sequence involving the duck, the young lady, and a long alley of animated cactus plants would probably be considered suggestive in a less innocent medium. So even at the time, people were freaked out by the uh, aggressively oversexed depiction of Donald Duck. And specifically that he does have contact of sorts with many women, some of whom he dances with. He gets a kiss that literally knocks him off his feet at one point. And I just have to think about how they were filming that, that you know, they had the screen behind her and that she's just, like, pretending to kiss him and that... I, I don't know. The, I find it kind of surprising that they convinced the women to go along with that, to be honest. I, I'm sure to some extent that was just that a lot of actors in the period kind of just did what they were told and that was, you know, there wasn't as much of freedom to reject concepts as I think there has been in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years. But there definitely was kind of this concept at the moment that, like, there might be good things going on in this movie, but the end is weird at best and and deeply troubling at worst. They should have hired an intimacy coordinator um, for 
for Donald's part in this movie. And and again, I, I think the way that it's handled in the Brazil section, where it's more about like dancing with the women and the tone of it feels very different. It feels very like, again, in the overall scheme of things, it's still not great in terms of the like, it feels like Donald's like on vacation, cut loose, having a good time. Like, it feels like everybody in that scene is having fun. While the women in the Mexico scene are depicted as sort of enjoying this weird thing that's happening (laughs) to them, it feels much more like Donald and thus the animators and the filmmakers uh, are objectifying the women in those scenes compared to the earlier segment in Brazil. Yeah, I think there's definitely an argument that this turned very fetishizing in both the sexual and in the academic sociological sense of of claiming and using and and Mm -hmm. exoticizing there's certainly still some serious elements of that going on here and it definitely does get worse as the movie kind of moves along that being said it still has surprisingly decent reviews even to this day its critical score on rotten tomatoes is an 83 that's honestly shocking to me (laughs) The audience score is a 65, which is considerably lower, but still higher than I would probably give it. And likewise, IMDb's score is a 6.3 out of 10. While this wasn't a slam dunk, it certainly isn't one of the horrible, most hated movies that only still sticks around because of it's become a cult classic or kind of a camp favorite. There are many people who still actually really enjoyed this movie, in part, I think, as we said, because these characters really did take off. Yeah, and they're really fun. We'll talk about it more as we get into further into the, the legacy. But I do think the the title song is really catchy. And the three of them together visually, you know, with Donald in his like blue and white and Jose being green and yellow and then Panchito being like red with a little bit of kind of yellow. It's very visually striking. And the and and this, it you know, there's no other way to say it. it just sounds weird because we're talking about characters that are drawn by people. But like the chemistry between the three of them, like is really believable. Mm-hmm. Like they come across as like they're these three friends that sort of found themselves together as traveling the world and like experiencing countries south of the United States. (laughs) I would have liked a better introduction for Panchito simply because, you know, we got kind of that introduction with Jose where he is kind of in awe of the Donald Duck, but he also mocks Donald because Donald deserves mocking and we see that building of rapport, mm-hmm. whereas Panchito just kind of appears and is like, you're my two buddies now, which, fair enough, some extroverts do get friends that way. Yeah, I was gonna say, I know people like that. And there are people who like are, look, I'm here on the life of the party. Nice to meet you. Let's go. And so I, I don't I don't disagree with you that uh, having a little bit more like Panchito doesn't have as many defining characteristics or isn't as fleshed out because he is one brand new and two again, not given a particularly deep introduction. I think his defining trait is to be able to, you know, sit hold a note for a really long time. <laughs> I do think as a portrait of being an extrovert who again is like announcing himself as one, I'm your best, I'm your new best friend. And two, I'm the life of this party. Let's go. 
does work pretty well and is certainly memorable. <laughs> and I will say one thing that's kind of interesting is that timelines get complicated with this movie because in the early 1940s, there was the Silly Symphony comic strip and it featured Jose Carioca in a series from October 11th, 1942 to October 1st, 1944. So the U.S. citizens were actually fairly familiar with Jose. It wasn't just uh, Saludos Amigos. But it actually goes deeper than that. This was immediately replace replaced by a Panchito strip, which ran for another year, which actually predates the movie arriving in the U.S. So those who were, you know, devout lovers of the Silly Symphony comic strip actually knew Panchito before we did or before Donald did in this movie. <laughs> So it's it's kind of a weird reversal of what one would expect to happen. And that's so amazing to me because when we we started doing this podcast project, it's like, all right, we're going to do a really deep dive on Disney. We're kind of all, all these feature films. And then there's the shorts and then there's the comics. And I, I didn't realize before we started getting into this stuff how much I didn't know that how, I didn't realize how much intermingling there was between them and how the like i think of the feature films or i've always thought of the feature films sort of the flagship product of the studio but they were cranking out you know shorts and again like the comics which you know were licensed and, and all that kind of like they weren't necessarily done like in-house in-house but it's just interesting to see i guess how disney's relationship with all forms of media has constant has just been constantly evolving and changing and taking over as much of our lives as they can, <laughs> uh, going back almost 100 years. We kind of have this concept that the MCU is like the first thing to do that. The MCU is often held up as kind of the American mythological system because it's the only kind of thing that people can think of at this moment that kind of parallels having all these different stories and different mediums. But Disney was doing it all the way back in the 40s, not just with licensing, which is what I think most of us think of, but these comic strips were introducing things, and there were comic strips all over the world. These comic strips were different in other parts of the world. There were more Panchito comics being put out in Mexico. There were more Jose comics being put out in Brazil. Oddly, the Dutch and the Italians were really into these two characters. So not only is it the movies and uh, eventually TV shows and the, you know, U.S.-based comics and cartoons, but we also have the international layer. And it's really just kind of impressive to see that happening so, so early in a way that we kind of don't see Disney proper doing until like Wreck-It Ralph 2 when we see all the Disney princesses come together. So it's really cool to see that happening just so early there. I really like the idea of like a kid going to this movie with his family in 1945 and the dad's like, who's this Panchito character? Like they're like leaving the theater and the dad's like really like, I don't understand what Panchito's deal is. And the kid's like, dad, have you not been reading the Sunday comic strip? <laughs> like, like, duh, like... Like, you know, it's it's that sort of like book reader, like, well, if you had if you had kept up with the Silly Symphony comics, you already know everything you need to know about Panchito. <laughs> Part of the kind of problem with this is that in this movie, all we see of Mexico and Brazil is 
what Donald and the American viewers are being directed to like and consume, the comic strips actually, like, really expand their worlds. They have friends and horses and jobs and all of these things, love interests. They have their own worlds in these comics that aren't just for the consumption of the U.S. citizen, which actually makes it so that it really is that kind of, if you had read the book, you would know all of the culture. But since you don't, all you know about Panchito is that once he appears, Donald Duck goes crazy. <laughs> and I feel like that stuff isn't, obviously isn't as well documented as the stuff relating to the movies, but it's like, that's, there's a whole scholarly career out there of just trying to catalog the Caballeros multimedia appearances, let alone like every other character that was around in, in the sort of broader Disney stable at this time. And I think that that's part of why we see this really enduring legacy, because it was more than just these two movies that we'll be talking about here. And we see that both in the fact that their legacies are very, very, very widespread, but also the fact that there are very positive reviews of this film. For example, Alexander Ibarra with the website The Daily Chala. I'm probably saying that wrong. A website that describes itself as providing weekly takes on Chicano and Latino news, culture, and politics actually reviewed the film last year. And while they were concerned by the concept that this was all just to keep, you know, Latin Americans from joining Hitler, they actually have really positive commentary. The quote specifically is, unlike Saludos Amigos, the Three Caballeros is less about cartoon characters epitomizing cultural appropriation, like in a scene from Saludos Amigos where Donald Duck literally purchases the clothes off of a Peruvian man and calls it a costume as he tours the Bolivia-Peru border, and more of a thoughtful look at Latinx culture. It is cultural appreciation, if you will. Other people disagree with that. For instance, the Atlanta-based Paste magazine in 2020, Kenneth Lowe uh, put out a commentary that said, quote, If the movie has any clear through line at all, it's that Latin America is a spicy and happening place with a lot of cute girls who don't mind if you ogle them. There are a few moments that skirt the bounds of respectful portrayal of minorities by today's standards, but it's clear Disney's animators and directors are trying their darndest to make you think that South and Central America are awesome, partly by leaning heavily into exoticizing them. So this definitely, even just with reviews from the last three to five years, is still a complicated movie with some very positive you know, reviews and some very negative ones. I like those two quotes together because I think that does actually sort of crystallize at least my overall feelings or what seems to be the broader reputation as well of, of these two movies. And there's definitely a lot of bad, but there is definitely some good, you know, and as we keep talking about legacy, you know, Jose Caraca goes on to have his own rich world of stories in Brazil uh, all the way through 2018, he becomes like a recurring character in comics and things. Um, you know, we talked about Melody Time, which we'll talk about in a few weeks uh, during the season. Panchito, as we talked about last week with Victory Through Air Power, Panchito is one of the characters that maybe surprisingly becomes really intertwined with uh, military service during World War II. So the Mexican Esquadron 201 used him as their mascot. It, the 
U.S. Army Air Force operated a, a B-25, which was named and decorated with the likeness of Panchito as her nose art. It operated in the Central Pacific. And then it is that plane is still flying, actually, as part of like air shows and things, which is pretty cool. The Swedish Air Force also had a P-51 Mustang fighter plane decorated with Panchito, which is fascinating to me. Um, <laughs> and it was called like basically Red Eric, like Eric the Red. It's just interesting that the Swedes were like, yes, this Mexican character truly represents my spirit and I want it on my my fighter plane. But the movie itself sort of has a has an interesting legacy where these characters certainly lived on, as we kind of talked about. But it wasn't re-released in the theaters until April of 1977. And it was even edited down from seven, like the 71 minutes we talked about to 41 minutes. And the Bahia sec- sequence was cut entirely. So they even cut the thing. I would I was surprised that they they cut things out that I think were actually like really good and really fun to watch. And they left in a lot of the Donald stuff that doesn't really hold up at all, or was actually freaked people out at the time. I should say, I keep needing to correct myself. It also there's the ninth episode of the first season of the Disneyland television series on ABC in 1954. Uh, it was edited, shortened and retitled as a present for Donald, you know, and also that ran in, in reruns and uh, that it's Christmas gifts instead of his birthday which you know if they left in the segment that is about christmas that actually kind of makes a little bit more cohesive sense especially when it did down you know i also remember the title song was on one of those uh as i will keep off often mentioning disney sing-along tapes that i had as a kid because that's the sequence that really stands out in my mind it's got numerous home video releases over the years it was actually released in 1982 on vhs for the first time and then has been sort of reissued on various formats, including Laserdisc and DVD and Blu-ray for the 75th anniversary of Saludos Amigos. Uh, they're on the same disc. So it's a it's a single disc release that contains both movies that came out in 2018. And then Jose and Panchito performed with Donald in the House of Mouth television series, which I really wish that House of Mouse was on Disney Plus because it keeps coming up that these characters have cameo appearances in this show and I have no way to watch it and it's really starting to frustrate me. But they uh, appear as recurring characters actually throughout after making their debut in an episode titled The Three Caballeros. In 2015, The Three Caballeros perform in an, an episode of the Mickey Mouse cartoon series, which I have seen and highly recommend. It's sort of a 2D like, it feels like a very Cartoon Network-esque take on Mickey Mouse, uh, but it's a very fun series that really, I think, does a good job on making Mickey funny again. There's a good number of references and Easter eggs to other Disney properties that they sort of lean into here and there, depending on the episode, but it's a good balance between core Mickey character stories, and then occasionally they will fold in. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs appear in in, in one of the shorts at some point, but it's not like a recurring thing. Yeah, they, so they, they keep showing up a bunch of times. Jose and Panchito also appear in the excellent 2017 DuckTales reboot, which I highly recommend, which also gave us the classic quote, Larry, I'm on DuckTales, <laughs> thing that has gone viral several times over. Don Rosa wrote and drew some comic book sequels uh, called The Three Caballeros Right Again in 2000 and The Magnificent Seven Minus Four Caballeros in 2005. They were first published in a Danish release because... 
Disney comics are much more popular in Europe than they are in America, where superheroes still dominate the comic book medium. But both of those stories are very much in that sort of duck comic tradition of having Huey, Dewey, and Louie bring Donald to South America, where he reunites with his best friends and they go on adventures. They've showed up a few times in the theme parks as characters for meet and greets. The Coronado Springs Resort, which has sort of a Mexican Aztec theme. There are topiaries there. There's also a centerpiece at Disney's All-Star Music, which is the music-themed hotel. And the, the biggest one is the in 2007, uh, they reopened the ride that's inside the Mexican Pavilion at Epcot and renamed it Grand Fiesta Tour starring the Three Caballeros. And so it's a it's like a slow boat ride tour through mainly through Mexico. And then in the climactic scene, there's some really nice, sophisticated, you know, animatronics of the three caballeros singing their signature song and sort of leading you out of out of the ride. The theme park productions team spent six weeks in Acapulco, Chichen Itza, and Mexico City to get the footage for the new film and cast local talent for some of the smaller roles where Donald is interacting with the actors. So you're seeing like documentary segments that have Donald animated into them. And then, like I said, at the end of the ride, there's a really nice elaborate display that has uh, the three caballeros all together. There was a parade in 2011 at Disneyland that featured them, as well as the Bird, And then... Panjito, Jose, and Donald appear in the uh, most recent updates to It's a Small World at Disneyland uh, in the area of that ride that represents Mexico. So as we see, these characters really live on. And then in 2018, there was actually, they got a new show called The Legend of the Three Caballeros, which was like a web series that appeared on an app in the Philippines. I think it's now on Disney Plus, but I haven't I haven't gotten around to checking it out and didn't have time before we recorded this episode. But basically, like Donald, Jose, and Panchito learn that they are actually legacy characters and there were previous three caballero incarnations. And it also the show starts on Donald's birthday, which is a nice callback to the original to this movie, their original appearance. So I I really think that again, like while the movie certainly has its faults, it certainly has its high points. There is something really special about the three caballeros as characters that, Megan, like you said, really connect with people. I mean, again, I think part of it is just the design is really good. For whatever reason, the the personality balance, I guess, is maybe a better word than chemistry. But they really fit together in a way that just seems like their popularity feels somewhat organic. I think that one of the things that maybe plays into that is that the duck stories are so reliant on trios. I mean, you have Huey, Dewey, and Louie. You have Daisy's three nieces. They seem to have this kind of reliance on kind of bouncing these three characters off each other. And I think that they found that Donald... And feel free to argue with me. I am not a, a Mickey Mouse studier by any means. But I think that they found that rather than kind of having Donald and Mickey vie for attention which i think was definitely a big deal in the 40s by giving him kind of his own world they made it so that he wasn't necessarily a threat to mickey as well as much as just kind of an extension of this disney-based world where he can have his family or his friends and all of this kind of expansive mythology that doesn't necessarily have to take away from mickey as his own wonderful interesting amazing character 
which might have been very much the target since by the time of Fantasia and still through this time, people still thought Donald was better than Mickey, which kind of sounds absurd to those of us who have been around in the last, you know, I'm not 50, but in the last 50 years, I've asked my parents, <laughs> it was never the Donald show. It was always Mickey. And seeing this kind of gives me a moment to say, okay, maybe these characters helped Donald be less threatening, that he's not going to overtake Mickey's friends. He's just going to kind of have his own dynamics within them. I actually agree with that a lot. You know, I mean, I think it was over for Donald once Mickey founded his own club <laughs> and started to try to capture th- and indoctrinate the youth. But I think you really hit it because Donald in Mickey's world has a very different function than Donald in duck stories or bird stories, I guess, if we're including Jose and Panchito, who are not ducks, but he's definitely like in Mickey's world, like even in that, that latest cartoon series, which I, I very much like the core cast. There is Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Daisy, and Goofy. And there's a lot of times where Donald and Daisy are sort of rivals for Mickey and Minnie, or at least competitive. Like there's an episode where they're, they're playing doubles tennis that where things get out of control or, Mickey, Goofy, and Donald are kind of this triangular, this trio foils for each other, where like Mickey's trying to be like the leader, and Donald is like, you know, the lazy one who like doesn't really want to do anything. And then Goofy is the one who does want to do things but messes things up all the time. And like they both frustrate Mickey in in their different ways. And so I I think functionally, like I said, Donald plays a different role when he's with Mickey than when he's in his own centered stories and it's it's really interesting though that even by the time we get to you know the the disney the classic disney afternoon i grew up on and ducktales donald isn't a major isn't a major figure in ducktales it's huey dewey and louie and uncle scrooge so i I was also glad with that ducktales revival that donald actually does end up playing a much larger role in that show as it goes on and if again if you haven't seen that series i i highly recommend it they're very fun adventures and they're very self-aware and there's a lot of references to a lot of different older things but they're the kind of references where if you don't if you aren't familiar with Darkwing Duck you don't need to be to follow what's happening in the show and appreciate the story that they're telling but if you if you like me remember Darkwing Duck from when you were a kid you will also get that sort of you know nostalgia dopamine (laughs) while watching the show but as promised we need to talk about the three gay caballeros because gay is a line in the song i feel like it at one point it became censored one of the reasons i wanted to watch the disney plus version today was actually to see if it was censored on there and it's not you know as we all know disney has now gone completely woke they are only concerned about you know indoctrinating people's children that's that's a whole other ongoing story that continues to develop in very weird ways but what i think is really interesting about this is that while the censorship was for the song I think you could, there are, <laughs> there are moments, and again, I am not an expert in this field whatsoever, and I'm sure there are many opinions and also people who are much more knowledgeable than I am who have thought way harder about this than I have. But I do think it's interesting that the word was censored, but there was no problem with Jose and Panchito twerking on Donald. There was no commentary about them dressing in drag. So like, they're not not gay. By some measure. <laughs> Donald, not intentionally, but Donald does kiss, I believe, Panchito. Uh, 
a couple of yeah. times. I've just done the etymology research because, as you all know, that's my love. And so the word gay, for the record, the innocent understanding of the word in this setting, not that homosexuality is inherently not, but the innocent, I suppose, interpretation is that gay just means happy. They're just three happy guys who like spending time together. And in their theme song, they do specify, like, we're all great, we're together, but once you put a woman between us, like, we will, we will fight to the death for her. Which is ironic, because mostly they just seem to be fighting to keep Donald from attacking women by the end of it. However, the word gay was increasingly being used to refer to male homosexuality in the late 19th century, so the late 1800s, and was actually fairly common by the middle of the 20th century. So if we're looking at the 1940s, they definitely had the word gay as a meaning for homosexual, and I think that there are certainly some nods to that. I think it's very similar to Pinocchio when they were using the word ass. They could get away with using it because of its, you know, other meanings. But the word existed in its kind of pejorative sentence and they knew what they were doing with it. I think that there's definitely layers of that here. I definitely think that's the butt of the joke. I don't think this is, you know, positive gay representation. This is awkward and uncomfortable. But you do see as Donald is attracted to the weird flower cactus lady, as he's drawn in more to her, we see Panchito and Jose jumping out kind of from her face to try and drag him away. And there's some, there's some interesting dynamics there. I would be curious to see a deeper exploration of that, but to be honest, I have not done all of the research needed to say how to respond to that, but I will say that Disney knew. Disney knew what their word meant, <laughs> and it being censored later is definitely a complicated, weird layer to all of this, as we've seen so many times before. The lens that I was thinking of it through is like if we can, if if Bugs Bunny can be sort of claimed or reclaimed as a queer character, then I think along those lines, the caviar it, again, it's not perfect representation by any stretch, nor is it really maybe even intentional representation. But I do think it's 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 certainly interesting that 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 word became controversial, but the actions depicted did not. You know, and and again, maybe with Donald. I know he has, you know, maybe Daisy's a beard. Maybe he he's like overplaying it here to just try to like, you know, to hide, <laughs> you know, like maybe this is him trying to pass and he's just gone completely overboard. I don't know. I'm open to interpretation on that is all I'm saying for now. But if if you have any, you know, if you if you or someone you know, if you've read anything about this, please send it our way because I would just love I, I would just be very interested to read more about other people's interpretations of any sort of queer subtext uh, in this particular movie. Cause I, I just think, I do think it's really interesting and something I noticed while rewatching it today. I think that one of the other things that's very interesting here is that Donald was figured, I mean, he's, he's lazy, but other than that, as kind of the ideal moral American citizen in all of these wartime shorts before this Donald may not want to, but Donald will tell you to pay your taxes. 
Donald is going to enlist and Donald is not, you know, he's not going to work hard uh, in training, but he, he will enlist. He will, you know, stand by the American way. So it's very interesting to kind of see him as this like moral figure to some extent in the wartime shorts and then going to this lustful, potentially closeted, weird character uh, just a couple of years later. That's your fun little thing. You may have thought that this episode would all be about the representation of Latin American culture, and there's certainly a lot to talk about there, but there's some weird stuff going on here too. And it definitely gets more questionable uh, once again the further in the movie you go. Uh, for sure. So I, I think in this, we saw, we I think we really layered our takes uh, on this movie with our commentary throughout, in part because we had covered so much of the groundwork for this in our Saludos Amigos episode. But uh, Megan, before we wrap up, was there anything else you wanted to make sure that we touched on? I, I feel like we got through everything that we wanted to talk about. The majority of it, I think we've already covered. I will say, if you watch this and you feel deeply uncomfortable and you want to not think of Disney in this way, Coco is a much better movie. <laughs> it does so many wonderful things. I'm sure there's things that I will find out later are not wonderful, but there are there are great movies uh, that do better than this. Coco is wonderful. Encanto is wonderful. There's better Latin American representation. If you want the weird one, I guess this is your movie. Yeah, I mean, it only took them 60 plus 70 years to get there, 75-ish years to get there. But no, I, I agree with you. I, I like Encanto a lot, and I very, very deeply love Coco. I find that movie to be just the the way that that uses color and, and music and emotional storytelling, I think, is one of Pixar's best efforts, uh, especially, you know, in the last few years or so. Oh, and I forgot Elena of Avalor because I have not seen that show, but I've heard very good things about it. I've seen the character design. It looks cool. Again, maybe someday we'll start going down to these other things that like we know of but haven't dug into. So, you know, if you have suggestions for future bonus episodes of things you want to see cover, certainly let us know and we will at least consider adding them to our, our long list of things to cover here. Once again, thank you all for listening. Next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, we will make mine music. Is the only film in the Disney animated canon that is not available on Disney Plus. On Disney Plus. With that being said, there are always ways to find these things if you are trying. Otherwise, we will try to give a brief synopsis just so that you know where we're going with it. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at dreammindheart and on Instagram at Dream with Mind and Heart. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And thank you to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork and Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song.